Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds in investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome. My name's Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Divisich. How you going, Mark? Fantastic. The sun is shining into the office and we've got a great podcast Sunday session ahead. Exactly. March was characterized by dislocation with US regional banks and Credit Suisse. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went? March was a month interrupted by a loss of confidence in parts of the banking sector in Europe and the US. However, this had a negligible impact on the operations of ASX and NZX companies. The Founders Fund was down 2.1% and our benchmark, the ASX Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index, was down 2.4% in Kiwi dollar terms. In the six months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 17% versus the benchmark up 3% in Kiwi dollars. Markets reacted to the banking issues by rotating to safe haven asset classes. Bonds rallied, interest rates declined, and gold-related stocks increased substantially. The Federal Reserve also created the Bank Term Funding Program this month, and this has provided emergency liquidity to US banks. This increase in liquidity of $350 billion likely drove the rally in mega-cap tech stocks. Apple and Microsoft alone accounted for more than half of the gain in S&P 500 during the month, but other parts of the markets were largely left behind. The Australian Small Ordinaries Index was hit particularly hard, especially intra-month, where at one point it was down 6%. This provided an opportunity for us to initiate a few new names in the portfolio that were unjustifiably sold off. We're actually positive on the Australian economy given the large immigration that is projected over the next few years. This has now been estimated at 650,000, which beats the previous record high over two financial years of 577,000 back in 2008-2009. The sudden surge in the population is set to deliver a budget windfall to the Australian government, a boost in consumer spending and taxes, which will help economic growth. This is alongside the strong commodity prices and the large inbuilt superannuation savings that Australia has. Chris, do you have any thoughts on the macro or otherwise? I was driving back from riding last Saturday and my partner Zoe called. Zoe's panicking. The cats brought a mouse in and released it in the bedroom. I was like, okay, just shut the door, put a towel under it so the mouse can't get out. I'll be home soon. Zoe's like, the mouse is squealing a lot. I was like, well, have you seen Jurassic Park? You'd be screaming if a T-Rex was chasing you as well. It's okay, I'll be home soon. And Zoe came in with a classic comment. You might not have to worry, I'll put a mouse trap in the room. Now, I might have missed the scene in Jurassic Park where they sat down for a three-course meal while we're getting chased. However, I just responded, great work, babe. I'll see you soon. Robert Sapolsky wrote a book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. The essence of the book is that your cortisol level, stress, dictates how you act and think. Like the mouse about to get eaten, when you're highly stressed, you focus on things which are immediate. In particular, timelines compress. This is what we saw in March. The lower sentiment went, the less investors focused on the fundamentals. That can create opportunities for those who can remain balanced, and we had one such opportunity in March with a company called IPG. Hang on, what actually happened to the mouse? A mouse is a rodent, so I caught it with a towel, took it outside and hit it with a spade. Back to IPG. IPG is a leading Australian distributor of electrical equipment and services. 
Electrification, in particular EVs, is likely to be one of the dominant narratives over the next decade. IPG provides high quality exposure to this trend. For regular listeners, you'll note that we called out IPG as a leader in episode 2. It was on the radar, but not in the portfolio. As background, we participated in the IPO of IPG at $1.20 back in 2021, pre-discovery, so we knew the business well. IPG reported a strong set of half-year results in February, sending the share price to $3.20 plus. Revenue was up 35% to $111 million, and profits were up 33% to $8 million. We remained patient for an opportunity, and it arrived in March. Investor concerns regarding US regional banks had us switched on for a pullback. IPG dropped as low as $2.65, and we charged in. As the market realised electrical distributors in Australia aren't impacted by regional US banks, the share price rebounded, ending March at $3.49. Tactically, it's these type of opportunities our size allows us to execute. Fundamentally, there's three points of interest for IPG. ABB, EVs and acquisition. Let's touch on the ABB opportunity. In 2021, IPD secured a $35 million in product sales and product categories with electrical manufacturer ABB on an exclusive basis. ABB is a global leader in electrical products, think EV chargers, medium and high low voltage products. It has approximately 30% global market share, but only 5-10% in Australia due to historically poor customer service levels. The opportunity here is twofold. First, from a revenue perspective, if IPG is successful at increasing share, we believe the opportunity could be $700 million worth of revenue. Secondly, margin. ABB revenue was pitched at a lower margin historically due to poor service levels. We see the opportunity for ABB to increase gross margins over time based on reintroducing a service-intensive proposition to a leading technical product. Mark, IPTG had an investor day recently. Was there anything you took from it? Yeah, we dialed into this investor day and what's getting the market excited is IPG's exposure to the electric vehicle charging market. To provide context here, Australia's EV sales grew 94% to 33,000 in 2022, and that amounted to only 3.8% of the total cars sold. However, in February, EVs are now 7% of all new cars sold, and this trend's only going one way. Australian EV Council is forecasting 1 million EVs on the road by 2027. What about the infrastructure to charge them? Well, in 2022, there are 5,000 public charges. Australia requires 20 times more charges by 2030, and that's 18 to $20 billion of further investment. IPG offers an end-to-end solution here, and it's in a great position to service this demand as they have an exclusive distribution agreement in Australia for EV charging equipment with the market leader, ABB, as Chris talked to. To put things in context, Gemtech only contributed 1.1 million revenue on the half. However, you need to skate where the puck's going. IPG have called out they are electrifying hundreds of sites for two large Australian petroleum companies, and we believe this is the tip of the iceberg. Taking on to that EV point, New Zealand sold approximately 116,000 new SUVs and passenger cars last year and 14% of those were EVs. Compare that to the Netherlands where 75% of all new cars sold are EVs, so you can see where things are going. The third and final point for IBG is acquisitions. IBG has called out M&A as a key focus area and it's no surprise. One, they've got track record. IPG's track record of successfully integrating nine acquisitions, all funded internally from cash and script. 
In addition to accelerating IPG's entry into new end markets, acquisitions offer the benefit of increasing supplies' reliance on IPG. Second point is arbitrage. Acquisitions are likely to be acquired at 3 to 5 times of EBITDA versus IPG which is currently trading at 10 times. And finally in 10, Mohamed Youssef, former CEO and significant shareholder of IPG, has moved into a new role of strategic development to focus on mergers and acquisitions. They called out in the half-year presentation that preliminary discussions are already taking place. So watch this space. In summary, with strong earnings growth, a balance sheet prime for acquisitions, and an experienced management team, we're amped up about IPG's future. Not everything goes to plan. So do you want to call out what one of those companies which held back performance during the month? Sure. Viva Leisure was a detractor during the month. It was down roughly 3%. Viva owns 166 of its own health clubs across Australia and also has high-intensity training studios and Pilates clubs. There's also a franchisor for a further 200-plus fitness locations. Viva is a founder-led business run by Harry Constantino that IPO'd in 2019 at a dollar share price. Share price reached a high of over $3 in late 2020, but has since retreated to the low $1.20s. It was originally based in its home city of Canberra, but has gradually expanded outside Canberra to be the third largest chain in Australia. Viva has suffered post-COVID, obviously, as members took time to get back to gyms and there were extra costs imposed with sanitation and physical distancing. Operating conditions are now back to normalised conditions and profitability has recovered. A key metric for Viva is utilisation. Improving utilisation rates across the portfolio drives increased margin due to limited additional costs to add new members to an already operating location. Utilisation in February this year was 73.6% and this was up from 65.6% a year earlier. And a rule of thumb is that for every 1% increase in utilisation, this should improve EBITDA by 1.6 to $1.8 million. The long-term target for utilisation is 75 to 80% per location. And this is generally achieved once locations become mature, i.e. been operating for more than 12 months. Viva will also benefit as it will have increased scale. Its EBITDA margins at the club level were 42% in the first half. However, corporate costs dragged this down to an overall group margin of 20.7%. We've done the heavy lifting for you to note that the guidance that Viva issued for the financial year 23 is also likely to be beaten. Traditionally, the business operates in a 45% first half to 55% second half uh, ratio of EBITDA, and the company reiterated this at its results. As locations open and acquisitions contribute for a full half year in the second half, this would imply an EBITDA of $31 million, which is above the top end of their guidance range of 28 to $30 million. The company is also able to self-fund acquisitions now at a rate of up to 24 sites per year, and this will be a mix of both greenfield and acquisitions. Chris, what are your thoughts on the capital allocation here? Viva provide a level of detail in their presentations which put many ASX 200 companies to shame. Particularly interesting was slide 29 of their half-year deck, which details the return on invested capital Viva achieved from acquisitions and new gyms. Keeping it simple, the returns are impressive. Management estimated a return on invested capital of between 24 and 48% on greenfields and between 31 and 33% for acquisitions. With those returns, it's little wonder that Quadrant Private Equity have been bulking up their gym business. That's right, and there are a number of initiatives that Viva's also 
implementing such as rolling out their own direct debit solution and keyless access through an app to the Plus Fitness franchisee network. And this is going to generate an additional $2.4 million of very high margin revenue for Viva. Given the predictable nature of the business, i.e. monthly subscription revenues, Viva should be on track to exit this financial year with an EBITDA run rate, including lease costs of roughly $35 million. Further acquisitions and organic growth should take this to plus $40 million for financial year 24. This is looking entirely realistic bar to, to exceed putting Viva on a low valuation of only three and a half times EBITDA. This brings us to the second part of our show, Discovery's Bookshelf. We had really positive feedback on this segment, even all the way from South America, so we've brought it back. Is there anything you've been reading or listening to that you thought was worth discussing? The book I have this month is Zero to One. I I first read this book on holiday many years ago, pre-kids, when the cadence of book reading was far higher than it is now. Zero to One is a condensed and updated version of a highly popular set of online notes taken in a class taught by Peter Thiel at Stanford University. So who's Peter Thiel? Well, he's one of the most successful venture capital investors of all time. He's founded companies such as PayPal and and Palantir, and he was actually the first outside investor in Facebook. Some of the learnings I took from the book were, being the first mover is not that important. What really matters here is generating cash flows in the future. So being the first mover Um, doesn't do you any good if someone else comes along and unseats you. It's much better to actually be the last mover and have the last great development in a specific market and enjoy decades of monopoly profits. This got me thinking around Google, which uh, was actually beaten to creating the first search engine by companies such as AltaVista and Yahoo, but Google came in last and developed a far simpler and effective search tool that meant it became the default search engine. Another point was on founders. Uh, Peter says, don't overestimate your own power as an individual. Founders are important, not only because they're the only ones whose work has value, but rather because a great founder can bring out the best work from everybody at his company. He also has some points on economic moats. Proprietary technology is the most substantive advantage a company can have because it makes your product difficult or impossible to replicate. But as a rule of thumb, proprietary tech must be at least 10 times better than its closest substitute to lead a real monopolistic advantage. There's also huge economies of scale being monopoly. As a business gets stronger, as it gets bigger, the fixed cost of creating the product can be spread out over even greater quantities of sales. And then lastly, on competition. Basically, competition means no profit for anyone. It's far easier to create and dominate niche markets, and then you should gradually expand into related and slightly broader markets. And this is the trade of most successful big companies today. Often a big total addressable market, or big TAM as they call it in the industry, means big competition. So these insights are not typical of what's typically taught at business school, but they're valuable real life insights from a practitioner who's succeeded, he's a multi-billionaire, and he's had substantial experience in investing and running companies. How about you? What did, what did you pick off the bookshelf, Chris? One I've recently finished is Never Split the Difference, written by former FBI negotiator Chris Voss. Why is a book on negotiation relevant to investing? Negotiation involves gathering information, and so does investing. Voss's central premise is tactical empathy. Everyone has something to say, you want them to share, and more importantly, not regret sharing. Voss states that questions are often a poor way of gathering information. And he shares two different techniques, mirroring and labelling. Mirroring involves repeating the last one to three words that a person has said. This is a stealth way to get people to talk further 
Generally, if you ask a person to repeat themselves, they'll just repeat exactly what they've said. Whereas if you repeat the last three words of what they've said, the person hears that as, I understood what you said, but can you rephrase it? And they'll often provide you with more information. The second is labeling. It seems like, it looks like, it feels like. People love correcting other people. You might take an example would be, if you're interviewing a former employee, you could say, it seems like X was a great place to work. The employee will then perhaps correct you. If you're willing to look a little stupid, you can often learn a lot in this scenario. That's great, Chris, but give us something we can actually use in everyday life. Vox, Voss actually shares some tips on pay negotiations. A number of these you'll hear before, but I'll restate them anyway. The first is the obvious one. Don't go first. Neither side has perfect information. By letting the other side anchor, you might get lucky. However, you have to be prepared to withstand the offer. If the other side is good, they'll go on with a low extreme anchor. Psychologically, we anchor to the first number we hear. However, there's a word of warning here. If you're an employer, be careful. Reputation is key and you might win the battle but lose the war. Second is user range. Reference it externally if possible. For example, I've heard that employees at McKinsey get paid 170 to 200. You'd then expect the opposite party to hit the low end of your anchor. Three, pivot to non-monetary terms early. For example, ask for an extra week of holidays. They might well give you the bottom anchor instead of offering you an extra week because they're not able to do so. Fourth and finally, use uneven numbers because it shows that you've actually thought about things. I've summarised some brief points here from an art form, so I'd suggest giving the book a read. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, Leaders and Laggards from the ASX. What do you have for us this month, Mark? I've got a leader, which was Domain. Domain is the number two player for online real estate in Australia behind realestate.com.au, which is also listed. Domain's origins came from the Fairfax newspaper business, which it spun out from in 2017. Domain still have a legacy print component, which makes up about 5% of their revenue, but is in structural decline. Domain was up 16% for the month, and this was quite typical of property-related stocks, as falling interest rates during the month gave benefit to interest rate-sensitive companies, and the odds of the Reserve Bank of Australia now going on hold at its interest rate decision this week have declined to only 50% now. Real estate portals in general, they're great business models, with the leaders earning monopoly-type margins. REA earns a 67% EBITDA margin on its Australian business, and Rightmove, the leader in the UK, earns 74%. REA has been one of those all-time great stock performers, with the stock price increasing over 10,000% from when it IPO'd in 1999 in Australia. Domain, like REA, have suffered, though, with falling listing volumes as interest rates have increased. Both businesses, but more so Domain, are highly leveraged to these listing volumes. Domain is also more leveraged to listing volumes as it skews more to New South Wales and Victoria, which are high value markets in the rest of Australia. And these markets have actually seen the sharpest fall in listings. REA has performed better during the downturn. It is generally has more pricing power as it is the leader, and it has a more balanced geographical spread across Australia. What is amazing is both of these businesses are putting through large price increases of circa 10%. And this is despite the, the downturn in the property market. This shows the powerful position they're both in and the dynamic in Australia where the vendor pays for the advertising of their property rather than the real estate agent. 
therefore there is an ability to charge more. Typically REA have had 75% of the market share and domain 25%, i.e. REA is roughly three times bigger. But because of the higher prices that REA can charge and the better profit margins, REA has traded anywhere between 5.3 times to 9.4 times the market capitalization of the main. And currently the, that multiple is at the upper end of the range at 8.3 times. That suggests that domain is cheap relative to REA currently. What the market is betting on is that interest rate stability may bring confidence back into the market and listings may be bottoming and starting to improve. With volumes potentially coming back, price rises to follow through and sentiment around the property market improving, there is definitely a strong rebound potential in domain. Chris, what do you think about the longer term scenario? What we've learned over the years is that the benefits cascade to the number one player in a network effect business such as online portals. It is rare that once the number one player is established, they lose this position. Therefore, although domain may be the better short term bet on an earnings recovery, longer term, REA is a more backable horse in this race. That's our leader, I'll balance things out with a laggard. My laggard is the warehouse group, whose half year report had investors seeing red. The warehouse was a Kiwi success story in the 1980s and 90s. Founded by Sir Stephen Tyndall with one store in 1984, the relaxing of import licenses in New Zealand saw the big red sheds explode across the country, providing Kiwis with essential household items. As a mental model, the warehouse was a combination of Kmart and Mitre 10. Over time, the warehouse expanded its brands to include warehouse stationery, electrical appliance retailer in Leeming, sports equipment provider Torpedo 7, and e-com shopping platform in the market. The warehouse group had a tough march, down 30%, and is down 44% in the past year. If we're going to be honest, like Matthew Perry from Friends, the warehouse group has had a tough decade. What triggered the march decline? Simply put, profits, or the lack of them. Despite sales increasing year over year to $1.8 billion, the mixed shift to lower margin grocery sales, combined with significant promotional activities, impacted margins, seeing EBIT decline 46%. Net debt swung to $83 million, and the group's inventory balance increased. Management responded with aggressive cost-cutting, which involved axing 340 employees. Those are the facts. What about some analysis? When we're looking at the blueprint for a successful retail investment, we want a category leader, a store rollout or structural tailwind, preferably global, stable or declining days inventory outstanding, as the base rates suggest when this increases, discounting follows, negative working capital or made to order, founder alignment, strong balance sheet and reasonable valuation. Stacking that up, structurally, the warehouse faces stiff competition from Kmart and Bunnings. In its foray into grocery, it is also coming up against Pack and Save and Costco. That feels a bit like David Tour versus Lennox Lewis, and we all know how that ended. The warehouse group doesn't have a store rollout and is limited to New Zealand. The balance sheet looks under pressure and inventory has expanded. Finally, Stephen Tyndall stepped away from the board in 2017, and despite the decline, is still trading on 17 times earning, an environment where consumers have shifted from spending on goods to services. Mark, was there anything you picked up from the result? We've been consistent that in the current environment, you have to be selective. Selective in the industries in which you invest, selective in the companies within those industries. One industry we're not invested in right now is retail. While we're wary of extrapolating from results such as the warehouse, we're wary that there's going to be difficult comps ahead for offline retailers. 
there's high levels of inventory in the system as many of these retailers overordered post pandemic. There's high consensus expectation for certain companies. And there's a bifurcation between the results experiencing New Zealand and Australia right now. This was called out just on Friday last week by Helen Stein Blassens, a retailer listed in New Zealand, but has operations across both sides of the Tasman. They noted in their result, the trading environment for the first eight weeks of the winter season has been challenging with the cost of living and inflationary pressures impacting on consumers' discretionary spend. Group sales were 13.9% ahead of the same period last year. But importantly, this is quite a deceleration from what they saw in the first six months of the year. Hallenstein Glassens also further noted, given the current circumstances, we do expect the Australian trading environment to remain stronger than that of New Zealand. And we typically agree with that commentary. While 13.9% is a strong headline number, it is comping a week prior period and has the benefit of price rises and a larger store footprint bolstering the numbers. This suggests we may see negative light for likes as retailers start to comp harder numbers over the months of April, May and June, and particularly in New Zealand. Well, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.